Hey guys, this is Cobane. Today I want to do a video in the series of videos that I've called Bible Bites, which is just on looking at a specific aspect of scripture that perhaps you haven't taken into account before as an example of the beauty of the whole and how it really holds together in incredibly rich and detailed ways. Uh, before I get into today's subject, which will be basically about the book of Jonah, I want to say that if you are edified with these videos on a regular basis, please consider becoming a monthly patron. There is select exclusive content, though as I've mentioned, I do prefer to keep as much available for a general audience as possible. But at the third tier, for $20 a month on Patreon and $25 on YouTube, because YouTube takes a higher cut, I guarantee at least one hour per month of one-on-one -on -one discussion time uh, on any topic that you'd like to speak about, as long as they have something to say, and that's over Zoom or the phone or whatever medium works best for you. So please consider doing that. Uh, it really is the reason that I'm able to continue producing these videos. But with that said, let's get into today's video. One of the things that you notice when you take the Bible seriously as a unified narrative is how many things that you previously assumed were exceptional, that is exceptions to the rule, really are not only exceptional, but fit into a very robust and unified program. So take the book of Jonah, for example, which is going to be kind of the uh, hinge around the, which this discussion swings. The book of Jonah is often cited as uh, the exception to the rule in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible is alleged to be a quote-unquote ethnocentric text. It is uh, centered on a single people group, and the Gentiles are really considered only as rivals to or enemies of the elect nation Israel. Now, it's hard to overstate how absurdly wrong this is, and Part of the reason I think it's so absurdly wrong is because it is essentially taken for granted and then taken as a way to frame the rest of the biblical text. So, you know, at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph becomes the right-hand man to the Pharaoh of Egypt. He marries the daughter of one of the priests of Egypt. Now, we have every reason to think that this means the Egyptians became servants of the God of heaven. Joseph would never have married into an Egyptian priestly family unless they were serving God. Remember, there was such a thing as a Noachic priestly tradition. That's what Melchizedek is participating in. And that Noachic priestly tradition is associated with the royal house and his associates because Noah first offers sacrifice and then he's exalted to, uh, uh, to a role of king. He's able to carry out the death penalty, and that means by implication he has authority to um, execute all of the lesser penalties and uh, aspects of royal jurisdiction. But he's king as high priest, and so throughout the Gentile world you are going to find again and again that the head of the cult is also the head of the state. This is why also at the end of Genesis, Pharaoh is able to licitly take a 20% tax. Because as head of the church, as it were, the liturgical cult, he is able to take 10%. And as head of the state the civil magistrate, he is able to take 10%. And that is considered essentially the highest tax rate that you can implement um, in ex times of extreme need without being counted as a tyrant. That's, I think, implicit um, or explicit in 1 Samuel chapter 8. 
And the reason that Pharaoh exalts Joseph to his right hand is because he said that uh, he has the spirit of holy God in his mind. Genesis begins with God's creation of the world through the revelation of the spirit who illumines all things. And then God creates man, the microcosm of the world, by putting the spirit of life into his nostrils. When man is cursed, it is said that he will bring out bread by the sweat of his nose, is the literal way of rendering it. And so the hard labor and the sweat that results, the outflow of life and water, contrasts with and inverts the original creation design whereby man would, by the glory of the Holy Spirit, creatively mold, glorify, and beautify the world. Now, the Bible consistently works in its histor historical development in a threefold structure. We might uh, 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 explain this threefold structure with reference to the classic tripartite pattern of purification, illumination, and deification, uh, as is it, it is stated by Maximus the Confessor. In fact, I think that is precisely what is going on when we look at the three stages of priesthood, royalty, and prophetic calling the three most uh, the three greatest examples of this staging is the history of the covenant from Moses down to Jesus the mosaic period is the priestly period it's a preparation of Israel for their global ministry they are governed by and centered in the tabernacle and the associated priesthood. The great crime is that of the priests. We, that's why there are two dischronologized stories at the end of the book of Judges, which is about the failure of the priesthood to carry out their Levitical duty. And that then that will take you down to the period of the kingdom. Now that the nation is sufficiently integrated... And you have to remember that's what's going on here. The king is the head of the nation as its unifying principle. And because the tabernacle has been available for a sufficient amount of time, Israel is supposed to gather to this one sanctuary and they meet other Israelites from the different tribes there. You will notice in the book of Judges, there's a story about an accent. Uh, one of the uh, one region pronounces a word differently than other regions do, and that's a problem. And this is illustrative of the actual purpose for which God arranged the central sanctuary. There is one place which the Lord will choose, and that will lead down, Deuteronomy 17, to the one king whom the Lord will choose. But in order to do that, they actually need to conquer the entire land. And we were told that they are only to receive a king once they have brought rest to the land, once they have conquered the entire land. But instead, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we hear that they demanded a king ahead of schedule. This is not a condemnation of kingship, but a condemnation of the king who will reign over you. In other words, Samuel's prophesying about a specific figure. And the reason for that is because Israel demanded a king to fight their battles for them. That's explicit in the text. And what that means is that the king legitimates his rule by bloodshed and violence, and that creates a ripple effect down through the centuries. And you see this play out in the history of Israel. There are civil wars in the kingdom of David. King Solomon reigns for 40 years, and then it splits apart. King Solomon engages even before 
the kingdom splits apart in the international arms trade. In other words, the king legitimates his rule through violence and bloodshed. And if they had allowed the Lord their God to fight their battles on their behalf and with them, as they were supposed to do in the period of the judges and indeed in the period of the conquest, then the coronation of the king would not have been associated with an expansion of warfare, but rather with the end of warfare. And that's what the Messianic Age is all about, where Jesus is crowned as king and these swords are beaten into plowshares, the spears into bruning hooks. And instead of tools of warfare, you have agricultural tools which produce bread and wine. But the whole point here is the unity of the nation. And you see in the uh, time of King Solomon, just a glimpse of what this is supposed to look like. Every man dwelt under his vine and under his fig tree. That's quoted with reference to the Messianic Age in the book of Zechariah. I think it's Zechariah chapter 3. The sign of the Messiah is the branch, and he is called Jesus the High Priest. Yehoshua the High Priest is his name. Indeed, if you work out the actual chronology of the Bible, you will find that from the initiation of the Sinai Covenant down to the completion of the Solomonic City, that is the temple of God and the temple or palace of the king, is exactly five centuries. Just as the completion of the temple of God is precisely three millennia from the creation of the world. These features of the biblical chronology are features of the real and true world. And so, we'll just naturally emerge out of the text when you work out the, uh, the dates in question. And up to the period of the temple, it's actually not that, that um, complicated to work out those dates. Now, in the period of the kingdom... The central sin is worshiping God in the wrong way, worshiping God on high places. But that in the period of the judges, it was actually worshiping false gods. Now, when the kingdoms begin to split apart and when the exile begins to uh, be implemented, we see the dawn of the third period, the prophetic period. And just as the priestly period corresponded to the father and the kingly period corresponds to the son through whom God rules the world, so the prophetic period corresponds to the Holy Spirit, the wind of God who blows through the world and brings changes into things. And the prophetic period is marked by Israel being called to witness to the Gentiles, not merely as an example, but actually as a people who's going to be sent out to the Gentiles, to proclaim the God of heaven. And this is the point with which I introduced the video, which is that send the sending out of Israelites to bear witness to Gentiles, number one, belongs to a particular period of Israel's covenant history, because before that they did so as an example, like in the time of King Solomon. The Queen of Sheba goes to him, he doesn't go to her. Um, uh, but also, it is found across a wide range of biblical literature. Uh, let's take the prophetic ministries of Elijah and Elisha. This is the center of the book of Kings. And Elijah, as it were, appears out of nowhere in 1 Kings chapter 17. And his successor, Elisha, is described in terms of the holy temple. Elisha's dwelling place is given very specific detail that is meant to make Elisha himself a representative of God dwelling with his people. 
and the descriptions of people going and approaching Elisha in his household echoes God's rules about approaching him in the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary. But I want you to notice a few things here. Note that Elijah and Elisha, they will go from place to place. They're always on the move. That is what the Spirit or the wind of God is all about. Jesus said that the one who is born of the Spirit blows where he wishes. It's often taken as a reference to the Spirit himself, and undoubtedly it applies to the Holy Spirit, but the actual text is speaking about the one who is born of the Spirit. And we see Jesus as the paradigmatic one born of the Spirit through the Virgin Mary in the Gospel of John, and he is going from place to place. He slips through crowds as wind could slip through crowds. Well, notice that in the book of Kings, the prophets here, these narratives, I think, form the closest analog in the rest of the Bible to the narratives of Jesus in the Gospels. These prophets interact and engage with Gentiles quite extensively. They do miracles for Gentiles. Elisha actually anoints a Gentile king. That is something that prophets did for the Israelite kings, but now to see the prophets anointing a Gentile king is quite extraordinary. And that is because the fundamental mission of these prophets, who are called at the same time the phenomenon of the writing prophets begins, they are gathering together a remnant within Israel. And that remnant within Israel is going to be spread across the earth. And having been spread across the earth, through the wind of the Holy Spirit, they are going to make waves. And I use that phrase very intentionally. Because notice in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, we see the sea, which represents the Gentile world. That's clear in Jonah, it's clear in Daniel, it's clear in Isaiah, in, in a number of biblical passages. The land represents Israel, the sea represents the nations. That's why I note fishermen are there in the New Testament, whereas it's shepherds who are focused on in the Old Testament. Uh, but in Daniel chapter 7, we see the scene begins with the wind of heaven blowing over the land, and that produces a series of four empires who are going to play an instrumental role in God's covenant program. In the book of Zechariah, we're told that uh, Israel is spread as the four winds of heaven. And when we hear in the Gospels about Jesus' messianic work of gathering his people together, and this has Eucharistic implications, which we won't go into in great detail now, but every liturgy is a gathering together of the people of God. Jesus describes this as gathering together by uh, his messenger, by his angels, those from the four corners of the earth. And I think he may well use the phrase four winds of heaven, but... Um, in the Apocalypse chapter 7, Revelation chapter 7, undoubtedly it's the four winds of heaven who are described, and this is associated with the sealing of the 144,000 by the Spirit, so on and so forth. Now in Ezekiel, we see that God rides in his chariot out from the temple, and we see those same chariots in Zechariah, where there are four horsemen. And they are closely associated with the four winds of heaven. And it is these four chariot horsemen who, in Zechariah 6, set God's spirit at rest in the north country. That's where Babylon is, and Babylon has been there in context. And to set his spirit at rest, when you look at texts like Joshua and elsewhere, 
This is about conquering. So we see throughout Zechariah what's going on is that the real agent of Israel's punishment were the four horns. And it's just a misreading to take these as the political entities who exiled Israel by the sword. No, these are the four horns of the altar. That is what is at stake. And God purifies and builds a new liturgical center through the Messiah for his people so that they might be gathered through the agent of the Spirit and so that the four winds of heaven called these four chariots here might gather the nations into God's household. And so Ezekiel shows God riding out in a chariot and it says that God's spirit didn't just fly off into the netherworld. No, God's spirit went and dwelt with the Israelite exiles. And that's why when the second temple was built, even though the glory of God doesn't return into the Holy of Holies, there is a great orchestral celebration in Ezra and Nehemiah as the people return from the exile in Babylon. That orchestral celebration shows that the people are the ones among whom the Spirit of God is blowing. And thus God, through his Spirit, makes his people an agent of his work. And so when we return then to Jonah, we see how ludicrous it is to think that Jonah is some kind of exception to the rule. Now the word Jonah means dove. Okay? And then you go to the story of Genesis about the flood. We see the wind of God begins to blow over the waters, causes the waters to recede from the face of the earth. And it says in that context, God remembered his covenant with Noah. And then later on in Genesis, the end of Genesis 8, and then beginning in Genesis chapter 9, we see that God will set his bow in the clouds, and when he sees that bow, he will remember his covenant. So the a rainbow is associated with wind because both are representations of the Spirit of God. Thus, Ezekiel chapter 1 and following, we see that the glory of God him, that the glory of God is signified as a rainbow, and there is wind in the wheels by which God's chariot moves. The Holy Spirit is the motive principle of God's chariot. So when uh, when we see this in the story of the flood, the uh, Holy Spirit, this wind of God, is uh, signified in the dove who flies over the water without resting on the corpses which were floating in the water. Now, this is something which is definitely implied there in Genesis, okay? So, why is it that the raven goes to and fro over the face of the waters before the waters have receded, but the dove can't? Well, it's because the raven is able to rest on the corpses. Now, that is actually, it, it's quite interesting. If you look at various flood traditions, you will find certain flood traditions uh, in uh, China, and then there are some in ancient America, and there may be some elsewhere as well, which actually describe this scene quite vividly of Noah seeing the raven uh, uh, eating corpses on the floodwaters. And it's just so striking that this is implicit in the biblical text, but it seems to be part of that oral tradition which was transmitted from Noah to his children as they spread across the world. And it describes how the raven uh, and the dove set their foot out to sit or rest on wherever they were resting and that rolls into Leviticus where we see that the foot or the hoof 
is essential to considering whether an animal, including a bird, is clean or unclean. Scaled fish are, uh, are clean in contrast to unscaled fish because the question is, do you have a protective covering when you are in engagement with the world? So the dove returns to Noah, and what does the dove have? As an olive branch. The olive branch is a sign of the presence of God, a sign of the Holy Spirit, because what do olives produce? They produce oil, and what does oil produce? Light. Uh, when God shines on the world, he makes the ground give birth to trees which produce fruit. And that means wine, and it means oil. You take any fruit, and you can make wine out of it, and you can make oil out of it. You could make grape oil and olive wine if you so pleased. I don't know why my, my, more people don't do that. It just seems like an interesting uh, project. Um, and I think it has a, a great deal of theological significance. Um, but the dove signifies the spirit. Oil signifies the spirit. And what do you know? Jonah, his name means dove. Now, we're told in the Book of Kings that he's a prophet of the northern kingdom. So why is Jonah being sent out? Well, he's being sent out over the waters, just like happened in the story of the flood. And we see that when he is hiding from God in this ship, the Gentiles on that ship ask, hey, what, what's your business here? What are you doing? And Jonah says, I'm a prophet of the Lord, the God of heaven. And they know who the God of heaven is. It's another sign that they knew who the supreme God is. They might not worship him very much. He used to be usually the God of just the royal family and... They worship these lesser deities, but they know there is a supreme God, and they are terrified because they didn't even consider that someone might actually be a prophet of this supreme creator. They say, what in the world is your problem? But it's a great wind which blows and causes this to happen. And when the great wind blows, what does it do? It makes the Gentiles inquire of Jonah. And thus we are told that they praise the God of heaven as they throw Jonah into the sea. The whole story here is about the work that the Israelite prophet does with respect to the Gentile nation. But why does he do it? Well, first of all, why does Jonah freak out about this? Okay, Jonah was a prophet. He knew God loved the Gentiles. This was not unusual. Okay, Moses was, was uh, friends with Jethro. Okay. Abraham was with Melchizedek. The idea, and, and David was with Haram of Tyre, as was King Solomon. Now, Hosea even refers to the covenant of brotherhood that existed between these nations. This was not something which was uh, unheard of or even particularly rare. As I've mentioned, the witness to the Gentiles was, was normative. Okay? It wasn't unusual at all. So why would Jonah be upset? Well, Jonah was a prophet. He knew the scriptures. The prophets who were transmitting the scriptures, they copied the Bible and they taught their students how to read the Bible. By Elijah and Elisha, they formed schools of the prophets. Isaiah, uh, uh, the first of the writing prophets in the kingdom of Judah, his calling resembles actually the renewal of Elijah's call in the book of Kings. Uh, he has disciples and they are taught to remember the word of the Lord and to trust in the promises that are uh, put into writing because they are in the far future. So, so silly when they say that uh, uh, the Israelite prophets, they only prophesied things in the lifetimes of the audience. Well, who made up that rule? <laughs> Isaiah 7 and 8 says very clearly that um, the disciples of Isaiah have to wait for the Lord for Emmanuel's coming to be fulfilled. 
He's only going to come when they're eating curds and honey, and we know that that only happens after the exile. It says it explicitly right there in the text. Um, but Jonah, as a prophet, knew Deuteronomy 32. And Deuteronomy 32 describes the provocation of Israel to jealousy. That is, when the curse of exile falls on them, it is preceded by and shaped by the reality that God is going to the nations. Israel worships no gods. When the demons, when they rise up against the God of heaven, they set up their existence against him. We know that God is the one in whom all things exist. Sort of set oneself up against the one in whom all things exist. You make yourself a no god. Well, because you become what you worship, that is what you value the most, that's going to shape you. It's going to define your individual being. You become what you worship, you worship no gods, you become no people. Well, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they were idolaters, but God decided he was going to change things up a little bit. He's going to send Jonah to the Assyrians, and he was going to prophesy. When God goes to those who are no people, that's a sign Jonah knows that Israel is in heap big trouble. But the whole story of the book of Jonah is about the mutual blessing that exists between Israel and the nations. And remember how the flood is the paradigm of all of this. As James Jordan said, Genesis 1-9 to is the whole Bible. And then it just expands out with new characters and more detail until you get down to Jesus, the greatest of all the Noahs. Or you could look at it in terms of Joseph. Book of Genesis, the whole Bible, expands out with more detail, new characters until you get down to Jesus, the greatest of all of Joseph. Notice the contrast as well as the connections. Noah is uh, gathers a miniature representation of the whole world into this ark. Uh, the flood comes on the face of the whole earth. And he brings seed into the ark. All kinds of seed. Well, Joseph goes to Egypt and he is the Noah to this Egyptian ark. Because it uses the very same phrase. Except as the first judgment was by water. Water came on the face of the whole earth. The last judgment in Genesis is by fire. It was famine which came on the face of the whole earth. And here, instead of seed, it's a harvest. And here, instead of a remnant, all nations from across the whole known world come to Joseph to receive food because the seed in Noah's ark has been planted and harvested through an exultant Adam. And thus, blessing goes not to a remnant, but to all of the nations. But the story of the flood here is the paradigm for everything that comes later. And the old covenant is to Noah what the new covenant is to Joseph. And so Jesus doesn't want just a remnant, he wants all the nations. He's going to baptize all the nations, not just a remnant from the nations. Every rule and authority and power and dominion will be subjected to him, and then the kingdom will be realized in its perfection. And then even more will happen, but we don't have the language to presently express that right now. C.S. Lewis says the, uh, what we call the end is really the great beginning. When you have a marriage, which is what happens in the second glorious coming, it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. No, marriage is, is the end of one thing, yes, but it's more of a beginning than it is an end. The fruitfulness that happens in the marital bond creates more newness than the marriage ended oldness. But you see, whenever God molds, remolds his people, the center of the world, 
This has a ripple effect, spiritually speaking. It's why the Axial Age, when all this new stuff begins to develop, happens in the return from Babylon. That's why I think in a revised chronology, the revival of Israel under the United Monarchy, that correlates quite precisely with the revival of Egypt under the New Kingdom, which I believe is not a 15th century thing. It's a 10th century thing. So just tell you how, how, how much of a kook I really am. Um, in any case, we see that uh, in, uh, in the life and work of Jonah, he's thrown into the sea. Remember, he's the spirit. Okay, Jonah means dove, and the prophet has the spirit in him. He's thrown into the sea, and he goes into a great fish. Now remember, fish, ocean, Gentiles. So Ezekiel 47, the river of life flows out from the temple, and what does it do? It gives life to the fish. In where? The Dead Sea. Because remember, the Dead Sea was created by the judgment that fell on the four or five cities of the plain in, in Genesis. Okay, I think we kind of ignore that because that's really, it's, it's not amenable to the, the conventional history of the world. But I think the patriarchal period is really the late Chalcolithic period, archaeologically period, or archaeologically speaking. You don't have to agree with me, but that's, as far as I, I, I know, it's the only time that you'll find anything like the uh, uh, coalition of Ketoleomer. Uh, it's the only time you're going to find in Getty. I inhabited in any kind of reasonable time span, so I don't think Middle Bronze. I think it's a Chocolithic. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you know, just uh, just ignore it. Um, but essentially, what we're being told here is that the judgment that fell on the wicked nations is um, transfigured into blessing. So the nations are resurrected. So. Jonah is being sent to where? He's being sent to the great city. Great city, great city, great city. Great fish, great fish, great fish. Got this insight from James Jordan. I listened to his lectures on Jonah very early in my exploration of his work. It's, this is a very vivid memory because it was so exciting to see how much the Bible really had in it. But you have to pay attention to these common turns of phrase. When you see a word like this used in close quarters repeatedly, for these two different things, you want to draw the association between the two. Now, what is it that the great fish does relative to Jonah? Well, remember, Jonah's a prophet as a representative of the whole nation. When Isaiah is called as a prophet, his experience anticipates the experience of the whole nation in Isaiah 24 and following. Okay, he's uh, Fire burns his lips, and those lips are purified, and he's atoned for. Same thing with Ezekiel. Ezekiel is filled with the Spirit, Ezekiel 1 to 2, and that anticipates the filling of the Spirit of the whole nation, Ezekiel 37, the dry bones, the resurrection from the grave. Same thing with Jonah. Jonah is a sign of what's going to happen to the whole nation. So he goes into the great fish, and then he spit out again. Now, what does that tell you? What it tells you is that when you see the great city, you should be seeing this as more than a judgment. Just as the fish corresponds to the Gentiles, so also the city is a protective guardian for the people of Israel. So you see in Daniel 7, you see these four beasts. And they're guardian beasts, because Daniel 7 and Ezekiel 1 to 2 are very closely connected. Both of them have these uh, four bestial uh, uh, figures, or four faces of the cherubim, and it ends with the Son of Man. Ezekiel was made the Son of Man. He's a high priestly figure throughout the book. He's not allowed to ritually mourn his wife, different from just, you know, grieving her privately, but he wasn't allowed to ritually mourn because that's something that the high priest cannot do because the high priest can't be associated closely with death. 
That means the Son of Man is a high priestly figure, and that tells you why Jesus is the Son of Man there in Daniel chapter 7, because the Son of Man ascends twice, once for himself, once for the nation, Leviticus chapter 16. Well, that tells you why the Son of Man is said to be a figure of the nation inheriting the kingdom of God in Daniel chapter 7. It's a double ascent of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Clouds of incense, Day of Atonement, clouds of heaven, Daniel 7. Just a little bit of field, but, you know, pretty cool stuff, I think. Um... Great fish, great city. So Jonah goes to Nineveh. What does he do? He preaches. What does he say? He say, if you repent, you'll be spared? Nope. And this is a really interesting point. Now, St. Porphyrios said um, the apocalypse was written so that it wouldn't happen. And that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Obviously, it has to be appropriately qualified. Um, but I think one of the things that we learn from the Bible is that whenever God acts... In part, it's up to us what that means for us, right? So God pours holy water on the world. Does that drown you or does that exalt you to the top of Mount Ararat? God enslaves the whole world. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean you're forced into servitude? Or does that mean that your ear is opened up, as in Exodus 21, so that you hear the voice of the master because you love your master and you want to be a son and not merely a servant? That's what happens in Exodus 21. That's why we see, for example, when Israel, it says they will take the nations as slaves. We have to understand that there's a conceptual flexibility here. God will make Abraham the father of many nations. And actually, that is within the concept of the nations coming into servitude. Because the slave, in a biblical sense, and the word slave in the, uh, in the Hebrew Bible doesn't have the same connotations that it does in the English language because it's, it's a much broader broader, broader concept. Um, but if you are in Exodus 21, if you're a slave and you love the family you're with, you can become adopted into the house. You're kind of a home, homeborn son. Your ear is opened up. The circumcision of the ear so that you hear the voice of the master. Now you become part of the family. This is obviously a major theme throughout the Bible. So Isaiah 14, they, uh, the nations are, quote-unquote, enslaved by Israel. Well, there's a conceptual flexibility here. This can turn into blessing because you become adopted into the family. Father of many nations are you called. You see this going on in at the end of Genesis. These two pharaohs, the pharaoh of Joseph, pharaoh of Moses, they've got lots of analogies to each other. Both of them are pharaohs through whom God's name is proclaimed to the Gentiles. One is proclaimed through the curse that falls in Egypt, the other through the blessing. Well, in uh, Genesis... We see that Pharaoh is described as the son of Joseph. Joseph becomes father to Pharaoh. And the whole nation of Egypt actually becomes Pharaoh's servants. They sell back the land to the Pharaoh. It's a kind of jubilee. It reverts to the original father of the household. That's a, a cool little detail, I think. So jo Jonah is sent to Nineveh. And he says... Not if you repent, you'll be spared, but 40 days and this city is going to be overthrown. There's no conditionality here. I think there's a lot of theological stuff you can find within this. Um, you see, there's a clear spiritual analogy here to the destruction of Jerusalem, right? Jesus is raised from the dead, crowned as king of kings, and 40 years later, one generation, Jerusalem is destroyed. And you'll see that at the beginning of the period of the exile... Babylon becomes spiritualized, 
Nebuchadnezzar converts. He's baptized with water from heaven, Daniel chapter, uh, uh, Daniel chapter 4. Uh, so Babylon becomes Zion, and at the end, Zion becomes Babylon. So Book of Revelation, think, uh, Babylon is a spiritual way of referring to Jerusalem. So Revelation chapter 11, we say Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Well, was it, uh, did the promise of Nineveh's destruction get canceled? No, it didn't. Because you know what they do? They wear sackcloth and ashes. They themselves have chosen to enter into death freely through repentance. And that allows them to have resurrection from the dead. And Jonah's very upset about this. But he's missing the point. Because the prophet has been sent to Nineveh not to abandon the Israelites, but to prepare a place for the children of Israel. We know, for example, that there were Israelites from the northern kingdom, because remember, Babylon assimilated the Assyrian Empire into itself. So there were Israelites from the northern kingdom that came back uh, from Babylon with the Jews. All right, so uh, um, Anna from the Gospel of Luke is uh, of the tribe of Asher. It's a northern tribe. So when Jonah prophesies to the Ninevites and they repent, they become fearers of God, that means that when the northern kingdom goes into exile, there will be families there who know who God is and they fear the God of heaven. Okay, so this is like a, a, a macrocosmic expansion of the little miniature version of this story that we saw at the beginning of Jonah. Jonah's thrown into the sea. What does that do? It causes the Gentiles on the boat to praise the God of heaven. Well, now, Jonah goes to Nineveh, causes the Gentiles in the city to praise the God of heaven. And then we see a parabolic representation of this. It's an actual parable that God enacted in real time, in real space for Jonah. Just Jesus curses a fig tree as a parable, so same thing, we got a tree here, which is a parable. Jonah is looking at the city. He's upset that it's not getting destroyed. A plant uh, uh, protects Jonah, right? And it protects him from the burning heat of the sun. Okay, the sun rises, and that brings judgment because God uh, uh, shines light on the world, and he sees that it's good or he sees that it's evil, and then he acts accordingly. Okay, Genesis chapter 19 says right before the uh, fire from heaven is rained on the cities of the plain, it says the sun rose upon the land. Jacob goes back from his exile, and we see that he's actually reconciled with his brother. It says the sun rose upon him. Book of Malachi, it says the sun of righteousness rises with healing of its wings. That's when the Eucharist is celebrated. And we hear about Israel and Edom, the descendants of Jacob and Esau, in that same context, because it's an allusion back to Genesis 33. And Jonah was protected from the heat, and then this uh, tree withers. And God says something very interesting. He says, let me just get the exact passage up for you here. Jonah chapter... And by the way, this is why you have a whole prophetic book about Assyria in the uh, um, book of Nahum. Okay, God, wouldn't God does not issue a formal covenantal curse unless 
there are terms under which they have uh, been cursed. In other words, uh, this is an intertextual reference to the to the ministry of Jonah. And actually, I think there's a couple allusions to the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum. So Jonah ends with uh, this reference. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, you did not make it grow. And it says in verse 11, Should I not pity Nineveh, a great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right hand for the left, and also much cattle? Now the word for cattle here refers to domesticated animals. So kind of the eschatological program is that man extends his dominion to the ends of the earth and he turns the wild beasts into cattle. Not in the sense that they become cows, but the sense that they become servants in a blessed and joyous sense to mankind. They do his will. The numbers here is very interesting. Now, historically speaking, there were about 120,000 people here, but that was spiritually uh, ordered by God for practical as well as for symbolic reasons and the two when you get down to brass tacks are always the same because god rules the world he causes it to exist through his logos 120,000. now now you should think of the 12 tribes of israel right see the same thing in the book of acts acts opens there's the household and remember the church is the house of god so we hear about a house house with an upper room that is the top of the sanctuary inward is upward so this is the holy of holies so our tradition says that spirit of god came there and we are there are 12 apostles, and there are 120 others. And the mother of Jesus is there, because the household has the family, and this is the extended family. Well, what we're being shown here is that Assyria itself, the power which oppresses Israel, is meant to be part of Israel's extended family. 12, 120,000. Isaiah 19 shows us that Israel, Assyria, and Egypt, they worship together. They call on the name of the Lord with one voice. When Isaiah's day, Assyria was the great enemy. They were the new Egypt. And of course, Egypt is the old Egypt. And if God brings Assyria and Egypt into the family, the point is, everyone's going to be in the family. And so we have, I think, a, uh, uh, a reference to the theology of the ark here. Right, uh, Noah, in a manner of speaking, domesticates the whole world. Representatives of all the animal kinds come to the ark. And Noah has a family that he brings into the ark. And again and again, we see that God is addressing Noah and those with him. God doesn't just make a covenant with all the creation, as if it's just Noah and the animals. No, it's Noah and the animals who are with him. That's the big point here. Uh, it's the union with Noah which makes them what they are, covenantally speaking. Uh, and in the book of the Twelve, because remember you have to, that, that Hosea to Malachi, it's one book in, in the literary sense. Okay? God has ordained it to uh, function as the book of the prophets, as St. Stephen, the first martyr, calls it. Anyway, you have the animals, which I think has some very uh, real implications for the uh, eternal existence of at least those domesticated animals. Now, obviously, that's what I'd like to be true, but I, I genuinely am very convinced biblically that, that the case is quite overwhelming. You don't have to agree with me, but I, I, in my humble but accurate opinion, that, that's what's up. So, um, 
animals, they're with Noah, and they go through this death and resurrection experience on the resurrection side. Remember how Noah has to gather all kinds of seed into the ark? Well, Paul, he describes every kind of body as a kind of seed. And in context, that means it's a seed who goes into the earth and dies so that it might come out again in a resurrection. Okay? So we have 120,000. This is in the extended family of Israel. Father of many nations are you called. As Paul says in Romans 11, it's a remnant of Israel through which the nations are grafted in. Okay? If everyone's going to be grafted into the family of Abraham, you need continuity, and that continuity is provided through the remnant onto which the Gentile branches are grafted. So if the root is holy, so is the branches. The dough offered as first fruit is sanctified, so is the whole lump. Uh, and sanctified means made holy, and of course, in the next chapter we see we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So God sent Noah ahead of the northern kingdom to prepare a place for them so that they would have a cushion to land. And we see that this is part of a pattern in his program. In the book of Genesis, Joseph does it. Right? Joseph goes into Egypt ahead of time. He tells the Egyptians who the God of heaven is. They already knew about the God of heaven, but he causes them to worship the God of heaven. Uh, he marries into the priestly family. And then the... Uh, House of Jacob comes down. Remember, there weren't just the blood relatives of Jacob. The family of Abraham includes all of these adopted children who were circumcised. In 34, the Shechemites are circumcised when they were planning to join the family. Um, that's how you get two million Israelites from uh, the number you know, 215 years earlier. Not 430, by the way. Paul says it's from Abraham to the Exodus that uh, are 430 years. And if you calculate the chronology, it divides exactly at 215 years. That has no relevance. I just, I like throwing out these little details because I think if you're like me, um, you know, I learned so much from the James Jordan just detail. He would just throw out interesting facts all the time. It's just so, the Bible is so cool. Um, uh, anyway, and then in the exile, for the northern kingdom, it's Jonah. For the southern kingdom, it's, who is it? Think of it. You should know. Daniel. It's Daniel. Daniel goes into Babylon. He converts Nebuchadnezzar. When you work out the chronology, you realize that when Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem, Daniel was by his right hand. James Jordan makes a really vivid point about this. How infuriating it must have been for the exiles to hear Ezekiel praise Daniel as one of the most righteous men who had ever lived. Noah, Job, and Daniel, he mentions. Noah's the Gentile, Job is kind of the half-Israelite because he needed might, and then Daniel's the Israelite. Jordan suggests Daniel would have been seen as a hor horrible traitor. But you have to remember, Jeremiah said God gave the whole world to Babylon. And God had, had, had warned what was going to happen. He prophesied that Babylon was going to destroy the people. And Pharaoh Necho in the book of Chronicles says really interestingly what are you doing Josiah God has sent me here it's, a, it's an interesting um, kind of and I think suggestive phrase that uh, it was more than mere kind of providential happenstance but that God actually was prophetically active in one way or another in bringing about these judgments and Daniel's a new Joseph so we mentioned how Joseph prepared a place for the people of Israel 
first Exodus, well, Daniel does the same thing. Remember, Joseph goes into a pit. He comes out again. And he's a type of Jesus, obviously. Now, Daniel does the same thing. And you know it says that Cyrus, or Darius he, uh, the Mede, who is, I think, Cyrus the Great, um, was about 62 years old. Well, why is about 62? You can say about 60. Why about 62? Well, James Jordan points out the reason. It's because there's seven and 62 weeks in Daniel chapter 9. And it's that last week marked by the end of the 62 weeks where the death and resurrection of Jesus happens. And just use the number 62 in this context, about 62. That's showing us that this is a prophetic sign of the Messianic kingdom. Where's the death and resurrection of Jesus? And Jesus' resurrection brings about the return from exile. Daniel turns to the lion's den. Lions are representatives of Babylon. We see that in Daniel 7. Comes out of the pit. The nations acknowledge the God of heaven and earth. And so we see that this is part of a regular pattern of activity on God's part. And um, the way to understand all of this is to understand the work of Jesus is prophetically categorized as the new exodus. Okay, so what about the return from exile? What is that? Well, the return from Babylon is to the resurrection of Jesus what the patriarchal period is to the first exodus. That paradigm will help you loads because it's exactly the same kind of thing. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they are evangelizing the Gentiles. It's the same thing in the return from Babylon. By the time Jesus comes, there are synagogues all over the diaspora. The Gentiles know that the God of Israel is out there. That's a crude way of putting it, but the Gentiles know who he is, in other words. It was just as important as preparing for the coming of Jesus as the patriarchal period was in preparing for the exodus and conquest. All right, so uh, that's all for today. Uh, I hope I didn't jump around so much that you weren't able to follow anything, uh, but I'll see you again soon.